together, you and I are about to embark on a non-linear road trip through popular culture. A subjective history tour chronicling the histories and legacies of the coolest movies and television shows ever made. This season, it's David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker's landmark 1980 parody, Airplane. From the movies and comedians that paved the way for the funniest movie in recorded history, to its contemporaries and the filmmakers it inspired, we're bouncing backwards and forwards through time for a salute to comedy on film and the fine cinematic art of orchestrated anarchy. So come along with me, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez, for season two of The Coolness Chronicles, The Shirley Chronicles. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh... Well, we warned you. And remember, the Lord loves a working man. Lord loves a working man. And son, don't never ever trust Whitey. Don't trust Whitey. Lord loves a working man, don't trust Whitey. Last week, we reached my most anticipated moment for this season of the podcast with the underloved 1984 Zazz masterpiece Top Secret, and this week we're going deep into a crackerjack duo specializing in a similar brand of silly comedy and epic farce, Steve Martin and Carl Reiner. It's a tale that involves gently recycled stand-up routines, tender ukulele ballads, dangerously crossed eyes, and the greatest cinematic pastime reusing clips from old movies without the express written consent of the actors in that footage. On with the show! The Duo with Two Brains, Steve Martin and Carl Reiner, Part 1. Few comedians were as on top of the world as Steve Martin in the mid-1970s. His particular live blend of absurdist non-sequiturs, physical gags, and inspired silliness had connected with the hip youth of the time, a success that parlayed into hit records and a long history of appearances on Saturday Night Live. But one person saw this success as finite, Martin himself. He was starting to feel that his act's inherent weirdness would only be effective for a certain amount of time. As people developed a tolerance to it, it would lose its bite. So where was he to go for a career transition? Why, the movies, of course! Martin's record producer was chummy with Paramount Pictures president David Picker, who signed the comedian to a three-picture deal in 1977, plus a short subject to be played before the distributor's big tent bowl for the following year, Grease. This resulted in The Absent-Minded Waiter, starring Martin, Buck Henry, and Terry Garr, which was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film and a script called Easy Money, which Martin wrote with Carl Gottlieb, screenwriter of Jaws, which Gottlieb only refers to as, quote, the fish movie, unquote. But Easy Money didn't come easy. Money... For weeks, Gottlieb and Martin had no idea exactly what they wanted to write, until Martin's manager suggested a story about immense wealth corrupting someone, and coupled with a line from Martin's stand-up, I was born a poor black child. 
suddenly they had something, and the concept began to coalesce as a rise and fall narrative with shades of John Bunyan's novel The Pilgrim's Process. But after the script was written, the Mayflower ran aground on Plymouth Rock. David Picker's time at Paramount came to an end with the arrival of executives Barry Diller and Michael Eisner, and neither of these men wanted anything to do with Martin and his wild and crazy comedy, so Martin and his producer offered Diller and Eisner a deal. If they relinquished Paramount's ownership of The Absent-Minded Waiter and the script for Easy Money, they would be relinquished of the obligation to pay for the remaining two scripts in the three-picture deal. Picker then immediately set up the project at Universal Pictures, who desperately wanted to be in the Steve Martin business, and offered him his choice of director. Originally, they pursued Mike Nichols to take on the project, who agreed under the condition that Elaine May be hired to help rewrite, and he also wanted to do another movie before tackling Easy Money, so Martin and his producers passed. Martin then pursued the late Carl Reiner, another legendary comedian, creator of The Dick Van Dyke Show, Sid Caesar Fellow, and Mel Brooks's former partner for The 2000-Year-Old Man, who had just had a massive hit with 1977's Oh God, starring George Burns and legendary wife-beater John Denver. The two men struck up an easy rapport, and in late 1978 began production on Easy Money, but they didn't have the rights to the title. During one brainstorming session, Martin thought of a novel he had read recently, Dostoevsky's The Idiot, and said, quote, but it needs to be something more like The Jerk, unquote. Although it was completely offhand, the title stuck, and in December 1979, Universal released The Jerk. Naven Johnson, played by Martin, grows up poor in Mississippi with African-American sharecropper parents, the eldest child of four. One night, his mother lays down something heavy. He's actually adopted. You were left on our doorstep, but we raised you like you were one of us. You mean I'm gonna stay this color? <laughs> Inspired to discover himself, the exceedingly dim-witted and incessantly enthusiastic Naven sets out for a life on the road hitchhiking across America. Upon pausing his trip for a night at a motel, he gains a furry companion, a dog he names Shithead, and eventually stops by a gas station where the cantankerous owner, played by Jackie Mason, offers him a job and living quarters behind the station's restroom. Naven gets into one scrape after another, coming to a head when a raving gunman, played by M. Emmett Walsh, attempts to murder him. Naven flees a hail of bullets by running into the backstage area of a traveling carnival, where he's hired to be a weight guesser in the carnival sideshow and meets the love of his life, a young woman named Marie, played by Bernadette Peters. One day, Naven receives a summons that brings him to the office of Stan Fox, 
a man he encountered while working at the gas station. Stan had difficulty keeping his eyeglasses from sliding off, so Navin fashioned a metal bridge to be positioned on the nose. Stan promised that if he could sell the device, he would cut Navin in 50-50, and he stayed true to that promise. Marketed as the OptiGrab, the nose bridge is a huge commercial success and sends Navin into the financial stratosphere, the very definition of failing upwards. Slowly, having money begins to corrupt Navin and turns him into an unlikable person. Maybe even a nasty guy, a no-goodnik, let's say, uh, a butthead. As his relationship with Marie begins to deteriorate, Navin's story goes from rags to riches and back to rags again when popular film director Carl Reiner claims the OptiGrad makes all those who use it cockeyed, resulting in the death of several actors performing a car stunt in his latest picture. Popular film director Carl Reiner initiates a class-action lawsuit against Navin's invention, and since everyone from the jury to the judge have also become cockeyed from OptiGrab use, Navin is ordered to send a dollar and fifty cents to each person who purchased the nose bridge, eventually living on the street, completely destitute, until his family, who invested the money that Navin would periodically send them, reunite him with Marie, and they all go back to Mississippi to live happily ever after. The Jerk is really a series of sketches and unrelated incidents loosely formed into a narrative, but it absolutely works. Partially due to Martin's utter affability in the lead role, reacting to even the most minor life experiences with an unbridled sense of joy and wonder in a way that feels very inspirational for two similarly dim-witted congenial dudes, Bill and Ted. Where the jerk succeeds most of the way is that it incorporates runners from Martin's stand-up career and even builds on routines that he was famous for, but never in a derivative way. You never get the sense that this is an Abbott and Costello picture where they couldn't think of anything funny to do, so they just perform Who's On First again. The screenplay doesn't feel like cast-off material or tried-and-true bits. It's all very character-based for the small number of characters that there are, and even though the plot comes and goes, the story constantly shifting into something new instead of following one thread, it's never incoherent. It rambles through a 93-minute runtime the way that Naven rambles through life, engagingly. You have this completely simple, almost rudimentary plot that allows for absurd details like pizza in a cup, a literally named Mafia Goon, Iron Balls McGinty, or an illicit film strip of Mexican cat juggling. It's a star vehicle all the way, Martin appearing in every single scene, and the film manages to incorporate everything people loved about his onstage persona while also going for something fresh. If you were on his wavelength, you should be on board. I will admit that I was nervous to rewatch the film on ethical grounds as the whole white guy raised in a black family born without rhythm seems completely icky, completely devoid of context, but it's actually one of the sweetest sections of the picture. Never is the joke directed at the family, who are all treated with respect and sensitivity, and when Navin cries upon learning that he's going to stay white for the rest of his life, it's hilarious, but also a little touching. It was one of the things preventing him from truly fitting in with his adoptive family, and Martin plays the sadness of the moment. And, and this has nothing to do with anything, but how can you hate a movie with a dog named Shithead? That's an automatic three-star letterbox rating, right? Originally earmarked at $6 million, Reiner wrapped the picture $1.5 million under budget, which made the film's $100 million worldwide gross all the more impressive, aided greatly by advertising that appropriated Steve Martin's subversive sense, like this teaser trailer that was supposedly only to be viewed by theater owners. Hi, theater owners. I just want to let you know 
We're going to hype the hell out of this thing. It's going to be a real moneymaker for all of us if we cooperate. Picture's got everything they want. It's got the chase scene. It's got the karate fight. It's got the blue language they love so much. It's got the double entendre. The adults get it, the kids don't. Everybody goes out happy. Plus, we stuck in a phony disco song. They all go out whistling it at the end like a bunch of idiots. Uh, this is the first. We intentionally stuck in a boring part in the middle, just for you theater owners. About an hour into the picture, they're going to be out buying your popcorn in droves. They're going to be lined up. You may even have to take on extra help just to handle all the business. You're welcome. <laughs> Martin and Reiner became close friends and collaborators on the shoot, often eating lunch together and brainstorming ideas. During one such lunch with a writer named George Geip, the two were discussing a screenplay Martin had written for which he wanted to use an old clip from a film. Gradually, the conversation evolved into a potential movie that used clips from old films extensively. The blank check afforded by the blockbuster success of The Jerk inspired the three to write a satirical neo-noir posing as a classic noir, 1982's deeply underrated Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Steve Martin, Am, Rigby Reardon in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Will $200 be enough in advance, Mr. Reardon? $200, I'd shoot my grandmother. No criminal is too tough for him. <laughs> no joke, too disgusting. Do I look like a dame? Not as much as I do. I haven't turned on a charm yet. He'll laugh in the face of danger. He'll dace in the fange of laughter. I'm on an important case. I need your help. These people we're dealing with are killers. Oh, thanks for telling me. He'll do anything in the quest for the elusive Academy Award. He'll get action, romance, danger, sliding, animal impressions, comedy, Comedy! Comedy! And drama. When Steve Martin, Rachel Ward, Carl Reiner, and Steve Martin... Schweinhund jerk. ...find out why dead men don't wear plaid. You're through. What a guy. The people who brought you the jerk try to make it up to you. The remarkable thing about dead men don't wear plaid is that it works as three things a standalone movie, a solid technical achievement, and a gateway drug. The film's pre-digital production refashioned classic noir footage from 18 different films into a movie shot as many as four decades later, integrated it through a clever collection of over-the-shoulder doubles, a suitably appropriate score, and old-fashioned costumes. Set in the 1940s, Martin plays a private detective named Rigby Reardon, which sounds more like the name of some Wild West trick shot instead of a hard-boiled private dick, but I digress. Reardon is contracted to investigate the death of a chemist-slash-cheesemaker by said chemist-slash-cheesemaker's lovely femme fatale daughter Juliet, played by Rachel Ward, a woman I'm still not convinced isn't Kelly LeBrock, but I digress. In the course of his investigation, Reardon encounters character actors from the golden age of Hollywood in the decade of film noir, whether they're trying to kill him or dodging his probing questions, sometimes even romancing him, eventually leading to a hectic foot chase with an assassin played by Vincent Price from a movie called The Bribe on the fictional island of Carlotta off the coast of Peru, which itself reveals a more insidious conspiracy involving Nazis and bombs made of cheese mold, but I digress. 
Among the other stars who appear, Veronica Lake from The Glass Key, Cary Grant from Suspicion, Ingrid Bergman from Notorious, two Hitchcock movies incorporated much better than anything in High Anxiety, Burt Lancaster in The Killers, Betty Davis in Deception, Kirk Douglas in I Walk Alone, James Cagney in White Heat, Fred McMurray in Dubnal Indemnity, with Martin playing the Barbara Stanwyck role, and even Humphrey Bogart from three different films, including In a Lonely Place and the original Big Sleep, who was constantly admonished by Rigby for never wearing a tie, but I digress. It was the final film for composer Miklos Rosa and costume designer Edith Head, and cinematographer Michael Chapman, who recently passed away a couple of months ago, R.I.P., had recently shot Raging Bull for Martin Scorsese, which proved as a proving ground for experience with black and white film. It's a movie I almost kind of regret having access to in high definition, because the clearer look one gets at the photography, and the better one can hear the sound, make the integrated clips that much more noticeable. That's not to say that the effect is subpar, it's just that the increases in fidelity since 1982 are staggering, but I digress. And it's a gateway drug in that if budding cinephiles watch the film and enjoy it, they'll hopefully be inspired to do what I did and start tracking down all the movies featured within. It was the one-two punch of this and Empire Strikes Back that inspired me to watch The Big Sleep, adapted by Lee Brackett, the first screenwriter of Empire. Because of Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, my film collection contains the Criterion sets for The Killers and In a Lonely Place, or Find This Gun for Hire, White Heat, Postman Always Rings Twice, Double Indemnity, and Dark Passage, which I recently recommended on Reels of Justice, but I digress. I also like to look at Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid as the first real Robert Zemeckis movie. By the time 1982 rolled around, Zemeckis, who had nothing to do with this movie, had technically directed two great pictures, I Want to Hold Your Hand and Use Cars, but this film plays with ideas and techniques that Zemeckis would eventually push the boundaries of following the success of Back to the Future, beginning with the technical breakthrough of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. By the time 1994's Forrest Gump rolled around, Zemeckis was making the digital version of Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid by inserting Forrest Gump into footage of John Lennon on The Mike Douglas Show, unconsciously or perhaps consciously aping a scene where Steve Martin appears to share a frame in a train car with Cary Grant and react to him. Or look at 1997's Contact, where archive footage of Bill Clinton was manipulated to transform a speech about a Martian meteorite into one about alien contact. I'm confident in saying that if Zemeckis weren't branded box office poison before his first hit film Romancing the Stone, he would have been all over this project. He either watches this now and becomes instantly aroused, or he spends every viewing yelling into a void, Ah, if you only had an optical printer that would have been so much more convincing! Or, ah, where's motion capture when you need it? In fact, Zemeckis made an entire episode of Tales from the Crypt photographed in first person, inspired by the aforementioned Bogart movie Dark Passage. Occasionally, the first person would look into a mirror, revealing the perspective to be that of a digitally recreated bogey, and it feels like Steve Martin and Carl Reiner were on that shit first. It's a real swing on a technical level, and even if it doesn't always hit the mark, it goes for it 100%. Martin and Reiner understood the hallmarks and idiosyncrasies of film noir, from the preponderance of subjective narration to the overheaded dialect of a cynical private dick, delivered just slightly askew. My plan was to kiss her with every lip on my face, and then slowly move her to the next room, maneuver her next to the bed, marry her and start the whoopee machine. And speaking of that narration, in Robert McKee's book on screenwriting, he describes the practice as a narrative shortcut. 
telling instead of showing, arguing that it's mostly used as a band-aid for poor structure and a lack of inner life in the characters. And it's pretty much true. But in this film, Martin and Reiner use the narration to set up scenes from other people's movies, a literal band-aid for the things that they can only tell and not show, because they have to jump through hoops already to choose scenes that would cut together, much less have them make sense in the course of a narrative without sticking out further like sore thumbs. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is not a perfect film by any means, and it came and went, grossing about 20% of what The Jerk brought in despite costing twice as much, with very little fanfare. I feel like it's my job to keep it in the cultural consciousness and nurse it back to health. And I'm doing a piss-poor job of it because everybody knows The Jerk, and nobody knows Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Hell, my mom introduced me to the film, and I'm pretty sure before I was born she had only seen like two or three movies. But I digress. Next week, we're concluding this deep dive with the last two Martin Reiner productions, The Absurdist Madness of 1983's The Man with Two Brains and the transgressive physical comedy of 1984's All of Me. Stay tuned. And that is where we end this episode of The Shirley Chronicles. If you're a fan of the show, $5 gets you access to not just early broadcasts of every episode, but countless hours of bonus content and super fun weekly minisodes every Friday that spin off from the weekly show exclusively at patreon.com slash coolnesschronicles. But before we take off for the week, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. You know me by now. I like animation. You might even say I'm fond of it. Enchanted. Smitten. In awe of. Animation is the purest visual art form, a medium that requires skill and imagination at literally every single part of the production aspect. For a live-action director can pick a standing location and film the actors of their choosing, in animation one must invent all of these details. What the characters look like, the locations in which they live or at least interact with, every aspect requires the dedication and effort of skilled artisans. And the most difficult avenue of the medium is stop-motion. Shot a single frame at a time, it requires the most minute of details be considered in every single moment. There are currently two studios doing the Lord's work in this department. The legends over at Aardman, responsible for the greatest animated duo of the 20th century, Wallace and Gromit, and the geniuses at Laika, responsible for a previous recommendation on this podcast, Missing Link, as well as the Box Trolls, Kubo and the Two Strings, and this week's recommendation, 2012's Paranorman. Meet Norman. Can't you be like other kids your age? His parents don't get him. He's probably up there fiddling with his Ouija or his orb. Harry. His sister doesn't like him. <laughs> you are such a loser. And the kids at school. Look, it's abnormal. Always pick on him. <laughs> but he does have some friends. Norman, wait up. I like to be alone. So do I. Let's do it together. It's just that most of them... Good morning. ...aren't exactly alive. How's it hanging? <gasps> Haven't heard that one before. I can get lost in stop motion easily swayed from just focusing on the aesthetic, the slightly rubbery sense of motion, looking for the animator's fingerprints in plasticine. But luckily, even if I didn't focus on such things, Paranorman has a fun story and delightful characters, taking the I see dead people concept from The Sixth Sense and essentially turning it into a family film about emotional trauma and the destructive futility of resentment, which makes it sound like a drag, but don't be discouraged. I'm just terrible at communicating. 
The movie's actually pretty damn good. Paranorman is currently streaming on Netflix, but you should be like me and help keep physical media alive by picking up the super cheap Blu-ray. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterbox.com slash coolnesspodcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your chosen source, locatable as The Coolness Chronicles, and share it with anyone you can, any way you can. This has been the largest and most fulfilling endeavor I've ever seen to completion, and it would be nice to keep making the show until it just isn't fun anymore. This is a 1,000% independent nonprofit podcast, and as such, we are markedly less visible. Every time you guys and gals spread the word, it assures that we can afford to record another day. Have any questions or comments? Have I missed anything so far in this series? Contact me on Twitter at CoolnessPodRyan, Instagram at The Coolness Chronicles, on Podchaser, or on our Facebook page, and keep on the lookout for updates. Also, check out the other podcasts that I co-host, Reels of Justice, where every week we put a movie on trial to determine if it's guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find fine, upstanding, well-groomed podcasts. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for all of our wonderful artwork, Bill Sherm for all of our wonderful music, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Isabel T, Bobby L, Michael A, Ian C, T-Flax, Ian M, Kitty K, Kelly B, The Vern, Michael H, Mary M, Bill M, Christopher H, Christopher J, Tracy R, and Jenny R. Until next time, do what you love, don't be a dick, and take care. Dawn, that's the end.